Welcome to the Bayside Church Weekly Message Audio Podcast, Cheltenham. Well, we're going to talk this morning about one of the most influential parables that Jesus ever taught. Most Australians have no idea how much they owe Jesus. Most Australians think that the way in which our country unfolded is because we're really smart and that somehow democracy and hospitals and education and social service benefits and unionism to guard the the wealth and the health of workers, uh, that all of this came about because we're really clever. It is in fact one of the consequences of being part of Western civilization that was profoundly influenced by the morals and the teaching of Jesus. We may have forgotten the Bible, but we are living in so many of the benefits of the values and the insights that Jesus Christ delivered to the world through his parables. You go to countries where Jesus Christ is not the, the thinking, that's not the values that has forged that country, you don't, you don't wanna be a woman in those countries. Uh, you, you don't want to get sick in those countries. There's no such thing as social service benefits in all the countries of this world. And uh, if only we understood how much we owe to Jesus, not just because of the cross and the forgiveness of sins, but the kind of civilization that was forged because of the values he imparted to us as he taught principles of the kingdom of heaven. And as a result, this morning, I want to share with you um, the, the parable that I call the parable of the good Jehovah's Witness. It's coming up here in just a moment. Now, if you're a Jehovah's Witness and you've come this morning, please, we're, this, is, this is not ever intended to be an embarrassment to you. It's intended, and as you see the parable unfold, you'll realize why I've chosen to call this parable good Jehovah's Witness. It's coming up here in just a moment. Now, one of the questions that emerges in every heart at some point in life is this question. If God is there, what does he want from me? If there really is a God, what does he think about me and what does he expect from me? And uh, there was a time in Jesus' ministry over and over again where questions like that were asked. And on one occasion, it was a lawyer who asked the question. There we go. It's there. The parable of the good Jehovah's Witness. The parable emerged because of a question that was asked by a lawyer. A lawyer came to him, the Bible says in Luke 10, on one occasion an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a good question. Um, He didn't ask the question because he wanted to know the answer. He asked the question to see if Jesus knew the answer because he figured he'd put Jesus to the test and he thought he knew the answer. Well, one of the things that Jesus will do is when you try to question him, he'll probably end up questioning you. And so he asks the lawyer uh, for the answer that he thinks. What is it written in the law? You're the lawyer, you're the expert. What do you think the answer to that question might be? How do you read it? And so he responds, he says, I think this is what we need to do. And this is what God wants from us. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I I almost want to stop and kind of take a different tack and recognize that when people approach the law of the Lord, they approach it in different ways. When you approach the law of the Lord, knowing that God loves you, the law of the Lord doesn't become a tick list or a, or a ladder to try to climb to get God to like you. 
It rather gives you insight into the kind of God who actually loves you and who is the Lord and the creator of heaven and earth. And he is, a, he is a Lord of love, so he is inviting you to join him in loving him and loving the people around you. When you don't understand that God loves you, then you kind of view the law as a ladder that you need to climb in order to get God to like you, and so the whole thing takes on a very different flavor. Well, um, Jesus responds to him and says, you know what, that's pretty good, I'll give you 10 out of 10 for that. Um, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied, if you do this, you will live. Now, if you don't view God as the lover of your soul, and then you find out what God wants from you, you can suddenly realize, well, I'm not sure if I can pull that off. I'm not sure if I could ever get God to like me. And as he now hears Jesus say to him, you know, the funny thing is you asked me a question, but you already knew the answer to it yourself. In fact, often when we ask God questions in our consciences, we, we're not really asking him for an answer. We're asking him, can I get a different answer than the one I kind of know in my conscience you really want from me? Can I get a different answer? Well, now he discovers that, the, that his own, in his conscience, he already knew that God was calling him to love both heaven and earth. Well, suddenly he realizes that's quite a big ask, and so... The next question becomes, can I get God to like me without changing? The word justify, it's an interesting word. Bible says this, but he wanted to justify himself. Whenever you're doing a Word document or a pages document and you've, you've typed some lines and you'd like all the lines you've already typed to look better than they currently do, there's a little icon you hit, it's called justification. You can justify your document. And what it does, it takes what you've got and it spreads it out. It kind of fills out the gaps, makes it look really good. He said, you know, what I'd like to do is I'd like to justify myself. I don't intend to change. I don't have to do any more. Is it possible for me to not change and still for God to like me? But the problem, if I have to love God and love my neighbor, and you're a lawyer, at least you know the 613 things that God wants you to do, and you can form a tick list of 613 things. Turn up on the Sabbath, put your tithes in the box, kill the beast at the right time in the right place and sprinkle blood everywhere. And so you tick the list and you think, well, I reckon I can, I reckon I can manage the God thing because it's like a tick list. But loving my neighbour is a problem because if only you knew Jaime. See, Jaime is my neighbour and I don't like him. Is it possible for me to do everything God's asking me and still not like Jaime? Because I don't like Jaime. Well, he wanted to justify himself. And the real thing then is, can you give me a bead on this neighbor I'm supposed to love? Because if you could find me a neighbor that I like, well, I might be able to pull that off, but not Jaime. Who is my neighbor? It's a great question. What does God want from me? He wants me to love him with, his, with my whole heart. And he wants me to love my neighbor and myself. But who is this? I mean, my neighbor drives a Mitsubishi. Does that mean I've got, I've got to kind of like give to my neighbor till he can drive like uh, a Holden? Because I drive a Holden and I feel sorry for Jaime driving a Mitsubishi. What does it mean in terms of economic behavior, social behavior, political? What does it mean? And the question then becomes, what does God really want from me? And how am I ever going to be the kind of person that God could actually like and love and so Jesus now sets out to try to help him 
understands something that actually he already knows in his own conscience. And he tells the story that has become known now as the parable of the Good Samaritan. And this is how it begins. In reply, Jesus said, let me help you with your neighbor. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers and they stripped him of his clothes and they beat him and they went away, leaving him half dead. Now, often you read Bible stories and you have no idea what that might look like. This is the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, a couple of years ago, I had an opportunity to walk that road. So I thought, rather than just tell you the parable, I'll show you the road we're talking about. And this is the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Actually, there's a number of roads, but this is the shortest road. And if you're going to walk from Jerusalem to Jericho, you're not going to take the long road. You're going to take the short road. And this is the shortest road. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. Now, here's another look. Here's another view of that same road. Here we are walking the road to Jericho. And if ever you wanted to beat someone up, this is a good spot to do it because there's lots of places to hide and you can't get away because like there's a ravine on one side and there's hills on the other. Excellent place if you want to rub somebody. But Jesus said this poor bloke has been robbed and then a priest happened to be going down the same road when he saw the man. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. If you know anything about Jerusalem, it's on the highest ridge. Runs right down the length of the country. And if you go over the ridge, heading away from the Mediterranean towards the Jordan, you go down into the Rift Valley and so... Many times, priests would build homes in Jericho. In fact, King Herod had a winter palace in Jericho because you could get there in a a day's walk. And the climate down there in Jericho is way better than up in in Jerusalem in the winter. Winter's very cold. It'll snow in Jerusalem. But down there in the Rift Valley, mm, very nice during the winter. And a priest just happened to be going down the same road. He finds, as he's going home from church... A a dude beat up on the side of the road. Now, a priest is a dude who knows God. I mean, he's got to know God. He's He's the one who's explaining God to people. And he's in such a privileged position, he then goes into God's presence on behalf of people to explain people to God. Oh God, I know they're making a lot of mistakes, but we bring you the blood, have mercy upon them. And then he goes out and he talks to people and says, God says it's okay, he's taken the, it's, it's cool, you can go home, it's all well with your soul. He's, he's right there in the middle of God and man doing ministry. Now, Here is a guy who owns a Bible. Now, very few people, nobody in Jesus' day would own a Bible. A synagogue might have a Bible, but all the the whole of the the Word of God, it's right there at the temple. And he's the one that opens it and reads it. If there's anybody who knows that human beings are made in the image of God and that God has a, a love towards people, this is the dude that ought to know that. Now, why would he pass him by? Why would a dude who knows God in fact, he's a representative of God to people. Find somebody half dead in the side of the road and leave him. Well, if he was going up to Jerusalem, you could understand it. Maybe. He's going from his kind of winter home up to Jerusalem to do his ministry. He finds a dude half dead on the side of the road. And if I stop and he turns out not to be Jewish, well, he's half naked. You could know pretty soon if he's circumcised him. Just roll him over and kind of tend to him a little bit. You'll figure that out fairly quick. But what if he was to die while I'm looking after him? If he dies while I'm looking after him, I will be unclean for seven days. 
and I'm going up to Jerusalem to do my ministry and I won't even be allowed in and God will miss out on my brilliant ministry. That's a terrible thing. But he wasn't going up to Jerusalem, he was going down. You see, the way they talked about Jerusalem, any time you were, it didn't matter which direction you were coming, you always talked about going up to Jerusalem and if ever you were leaving it, you were always going down. He was going down the road to Jericho, so he's not going up to do ministry. He's already done his great ministry. He has been in the presence of God. He comes from the presence of God, from this great place of worship, right to a guy dying on the side of the road. And Jesus said, he passed him by. Now, why would he do that? I was in Hillsong a couple of years ago, and I I heard Joyce Meyer say, who, by the way, is not my wife. <laughs> Every now and then people ask me. <clears throat> I heard Joyce Meyer say something that has stuck in my heart. She said, sometimes even believers have a sign around their neck and it reads, do not disturb. See, that's all that it was about. It would be disturbing to notice. It would be disturbing to find somebody lying half dead on the side of the road because this is going to interrupt my plan. I was going home. Hawthorne was playing on Jerusalem TV that afternoon. I need to be home. And if I stop, it will, it'll just mess with my day. It'll mess with my time. It will be inconvenient. And even though he'd just come from the presence of God, inconvenience was something he wasn't prepared to endure. He just passed him by. Bit of a shock. To think that your theology could be so good and your encounters with God so extraordinary and you still don't care. Well, Jesus said it gets worse, if it's possible, because he said then a Levite, a Levite. He's not even a priest. I mean, he's just a deacon. He just moves chairs and sets up sound systems and stuff. He, he's not like expected to preach or anything. He just brings wood for the fires and carries out the ashes and the, and the dead bulls and, and, and moves the guts and stuff. And on his way home, he passes the dude lying on the side of the road and he does exactly the same thing. Do not disturb. Amazing. You could be working for God full time and just not care about people. And then Jesus said, I'll, give you, I'll tell you a shocker. Down the road comes a Jehovah's Witness. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, when he came where the man was and saw him, he took pity on, pity on him. The Jews viewed Samaritans as dogs. They perceived Samaritans as dogs for two major reasons. Firstly, because they weren't true blue Israelites any longer. Back in the history, 700 BC, the Assyrians had conquered the 10 northern tribes of Israel. And the way the Assyrians dealt with, with their conquered people was to split them up and make them intermarry to break up any sense of nationalism. And so they shipped them out and brought other people in and mixed up that they weren't, they weren't pure Hebrews any longer. Second thing was that once they'd been gone for a while, the wild animals kind of went rampant and they figured it was because the God of the country was angry. We better bring back a priest from exile and get him to teach the people how to behave well so that the God of the country will keep the animals under control. And they brought a priest back from exile, but he didn't have a whole Bible. He only had the first five books. He only had the Pentateuch. 
And so there in Samaria sprang up like an alternative Jewish approach to life. It wasn't the whole thing. It was kind of theologically defective. Now, I don't want to be abusive. I'm not trying to be abusive, but you've got to try and find emotional parallels. And the reality is this, if there's any kind of believer in in Australian community that's likely to be viewed benignly by the average Australian, that'll be the Salvation Army. If you want to try to find a parallel, someone who you figure their theology's not so great and they're not looked looked on uh, with any great joy, and they'd have to be the Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, no one's excited to say the Jehovah's Witnesses came and knocked on my door today. No one's excited about that. They're kind of viewed as being kind of a bit of an annoyance. Well, that's what's worse. Jesus said a Samaritan, someone whose theology was really defective. And by the way, that's not insulting because Jesus did say to a Samaritan woman, you Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. Jesus was not politically correct. He knew that some people's theology was not as healthy as other people's theology. But here comes a guy with defective theology, but blow me down if he doesn't find he's got a heart of compassion. And I've got to tell you, there is nothing that I find more confronting because I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus. And I tell you, I own a whole Bible. And it's a, it's a pretty good version. And I've been checking my theology against the stream of historical Christian thought for the last 2,000 years, and I'm kind of right there in the middle. I've got pretty conservative, faithful theology, but whenever I bump into someone who loves people more than I do, I, gotta t- I, I tell you, I find it in my conscience, it's confronting. Every time I see the Fred Hollows thing on TV, and I know that Fred was not a confessing follower of Jesus, and I see that lovely pagan Aussie working away on the blind eyes of poor people, and I hear him on TV, he lifts a pad off one guy's eye, and you hear him say, oh, he's going to be okay. And I think, you, you beautiful man, you beautiful man, because you see, in your conscience, you know this, in your conscience, that good theology is not a substitute for compassion. It's a bit confronting when you think about it. You could, you could come from worship and you could come from your Bible studies and you could still not have much compassion. And Jesus thought compassion weighs fairly heavy in the scales of heaven because when a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was and he saw him, he took pity on him. This parable has touched the hearts of artists through every century. In every century since Jesus uttered this parable, it has moved people who try to portray the moment in artwork. If you go back into the 1800s, Van Gogh um, attempted to portray his appreciation of this moment in this particular painting. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And Van Gogh knew the whole parable because, you see, here disappearing over the horizon is the priest. And here, following him down the same pathway, is the Levite. But it's a Jehovah's Witness. It's someone whose who's theology just wasn't that great. 
demonstrates the weight of compassion in the heart of God. God loves people and he calls us to have the same heart. And compassion weighs heavily in the scales of heaven. There's not going to be a theological exam when it comes. I'm not saying that theology doesn't count. It does, because it ought to influence behavior. But there will not be a theological exam at the gates of heaven. Can you describe in 25 words or less the nature of the Trinitarian person? Write a treatise on justification. There's there's no exam, just a stethoscope on the heart to see if Jesus lives in here. That's all. Just a stethoscope on the heart to see if there's life on the inside. You know, um, I've got to say that one of the troubling things is that for 10 years I led a church and I'm not sure that we realised that we were actually surrounded by half-dead people because in all my years of being a follower of Jesus, I have never been on my way home from church and found somebody beat up by robbers on the side of the road. So I've never had a chance to kind of test this thing out. I did find a guy tied up to a lamppost one Friday night, but that's because it was his bucks party and his friends had done it to him, so I'm not sure that counts. So I kind of, I stopped and I, I tried to help. I discovered I was in the middle of a bucks party, so uh, I, was, I had, to, had to kind of be less Christian than I hoped I was. I had not understood, for 10 years I led a church and we were, we were really into our Sunday services and the preaching thing and the worship thing and the God thing and then our small groups on our Thursday night, but I had never realised how profoundly I was living in a community where there were people beat up and half dead on the side of every street round the church in which I live and I just didn't see them. When the Samaritan saw, he had compassion. And the thing that changed our church was that about 1991, we began to see it. And what did it for me, what opened my eyes to what I'd been missing, was when one of my staff members had an encounter with God, a broken heart, over female survivors of sexual abuse. If you'd come to me and said, oh, what does your church do for female survivors of sexual abuse? Because if the stats are right, they're, they're on every street. I was like, oh, I don't know. I mean, I've never been asked for help and that people don't come to me and we don't, I'm not even sure it's our thing. It's, I'm not sure it's my ministry. But when one of my staff members began to hear the stories and God broke her heart, she, she framed a little counselling course for survivors of sexual abuse. And when she launched it, we discovered that we were surrounded by 72 female survivors sitting in our congregation every week and no one had ever done anything for them. And, when, and they were courageously just trying to soldier on with life. But as she began to help them and grace began to touch the broken and, and wounded areas of their life, they began to tell their friends And next thing, there was a trickle of people who were arriving in her door and it turned into a flood and then it overwhelmed her because we we hadn't postured ourselves as a healing community. We were just not ready 
to face the onslaught. The fact is that here, right here in Cheltenham, you are surrounded by half-dead people. And as you begin to see them, the nature of church life changes. Australians look a whole lot better than they really are. See, it was this thing with the survivors of sexual abuse that alerted me to the fact that I was surrounded by pain and I just never saw it. So we focused on our religious expressions and completely overlooked that there were people desperately in need of what we had and didn't know how to deliver it because we'd never postured ourselves for that. Chemical dependency, sexual abuse, sexual addiction, that's the valiant man stuff, marriage breakdown. When I moved into the community in 1983 to pastor the church, Mount Evelyn Christian Fellowship, I built my house. The first three months of my ministry, I was building a house for us to move into and live in. Right alongside me, there was an Englishman who, who'd emigrated from England. His name's David, and he built a house next door to mine. And when our houses were finished, I invited him over for dinner, and I told him about my glorious faith in Jesus and our amazing charismatic church. He thought I was an idiot. Totally unimpressed at our ferocious prayer and our amazing band and our, and our brilliant preaching every Sunday. Couldn't care less. But I came home one Saturday afternoon from doing a wedding and as I pulled up in my driveway, a car pulled up behind me and I got out of my car and David got out of his car and tears running down his face. And he said to me, Al, my marriage is failing. Do you think you could help me? He told me later that just a week before, in the house over the back from my backyard, he had stood on a table in his home, put a rope around his neck and threw it over a beam and attempted to hang himself. My next door neighbor was dying right over the back fence and I had no idea how, how close he was to the end of his life. But you see, it was that moment that changed everything. We began to connect over his broken marriage and I would meet with him day by day and I couldn't save his marriage. All I could do was help him have a really good divorce. And as a result, he came to know Jesus. He divorced about as well as you can. Now God has rebuilt his life and his, his old wife has now come back to see him after her marriage has failed. And now he's just as a, as a friend seeking to help her. Divorce, parenting problems, family dysfunction, grief, eating disorders, shame, guilt, self-hatred, depression. Depression is such a rampant issue in Australian society today that Beyond Blue and Men's Shed are testimonies to a community that is saying, this is serious stuff, can anybody help? This is what changed our church began to realize that we were surrounded by pain. And Ferdinand Hodler, when he was encountered by this parable, attempted to express his insight or perspective with this particular painting. When he saw him, he took pity on him. And you can't take pity just over the internet. You can't just do it by dropping things in people's letterboxes. There has to be a personal, up-close 
connection. The sign will have to come off from around the neck. The do not disturb sign will have to be removed for any of us to be able to express the love of Jesus in the society that we love and we serve. Johann Lote in 1676 painted this particular attempt to portray the parable. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Every now and then someone will say to me, some fervent Christian will say, you know, what do you guys do? You, you know, you're into these small group things and teaching people to try to kind of help with their marriages and their divorce and their depression and their eating disorders and stuff. Don't you know that that's just a band-aid. What they need is salvation. They need salvation. And I won't argue with that. Of course, they, everybody needs Jesus and salvation. Everybody needs the cross. But Jesus didn't think that a band-aid was an inappropriate solution when you find somebody who's bleeding to death right in front of you. And sometimes you just get, all you can do is start with a band-aid. He bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Do never despise the day of small beginnings. A casserole to a sick household can be the beginning of an amazing journey. A little kindness to my next door neighbor going through the anguish of a broken marriage was the beginning of his salvation. You've got to be prepared to put on a band-aid from time to time if you want to see the whole deal. Then you Van go again. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn and took care of him. We, we spend a, a long time training donkeys in our church because, see, donkeys have a very exalted ministry in the Bible. They don't get to say much. There's only one recorded speech of a donkey in the entire Bible, and all he gets to say is, what are you hitting me for? Which is not a profound utterance. <laughs> well, I suppose it is if you're a donkey. It's pretty profound. They don't get to make speeches and teach. We had, a whole, we had a whole church full of people who had compassion and they just needed someone to help them to connect with broken people and they would carry them on a journey. They'd carry them. You, you've got to have teamwork involved in a church that truly restores because you can't do it all yourself. You just have to take the resources you have and apply them to being useful to broken people. Then Rembrandt gets into the act. Rembrandt. The horses, the donkeys become a horse in his depiction and the inn is a very European inn, but the next day he says he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. And he said, look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have because helping people is expensive. It takes time, it takes money, it takes emotions. Um, having worked in small group ministry and restoration stuff, you realise what it means to make a commitment to people to be there every week and to hear their stories and to be praying over them. There is a weight, there is a burden to working with people whose lives are broken. But the outcome is magnificent because out of this comes something that's called compassion, it's called life, it's called the resurrection of the dead. And by the grace of God... Jesus loves to restore, and so even amateurs can make an amazing difference in people's lives. This is, the, this is the picture I hate the most, because this picture, it was painted by James Youngnet, and it depicts me and my church in 1992. This is us. I'm the dude out the front. I'm the leader. 
the cross and the communion table, followed by my faithful Levites, my music ministry, and all we focused on was doing great Sunday services with our singing and our worship, and we walked past half-dead people every week of the year until we began to realise that their brokenness was our greatest opportunity to ever connect with them. And Jesus kind of raised an interesting question. Now he says, which of these three? He's talking to a lawyer. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. See, it wasn't that hard. You knew the answer before I even asked it. You knew that mercy was really, that God uh, will lift up mercy above sacrifice. I desire mercy more than I desire your sacrifice. Jesus said to him, good boy. See, now you, now you get it. Go and do that kind of life. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, um, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And this is the thought that changed our church. Good works. Good works create goodwill. It is remarkable. I, I watch um, churches that we train using our children's program in local schools. And you got no idea when you help a struggling primary school student how much the parents will love you for that. You want to create goodwill, you just help people. Because, you see, goodwill opens the heart for good news. By the grace of God, your church here exists to connect with half-dead people. It's one of the reasons you're here. Well, you may not find them on the side of the road, but you will at the water cooler on Monday if you listen to the conversations and you hear the heartbreak. It was this kind of experience that changed my life. I was at the back of a typing room in 1973, and I overheard four girls talking about the way they'd spent the weekend, how they'd got drunk and they'd fallen into the bath and this one had put her face in the birthday cake. And I began a conversation with those girls. Don't you understand that you are not animals? Don't you know that you're human beings made in the image of God? And one little girl looked me in the face and said, if these things are true, how come nobody tells you about them? I came home and said to Helen, we have to try. We opened our home. It was the beginning of everything, just a conversation. A next door neighbor telling you that a wife or a child is sick. A conversation at work, something that happens in a coffee shop. Everywhere you go, you will be hearing the pain. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And all you have to do is take off the sign, do not disturb, and begin to pour in a little oil and wine. And before you know it, Jesus is here. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray today, could you help us to have ears that hear? Could you help us to tune into the moment? God, could you help us in the times where we just don't want to be disturbed, to find compassion rising like a tide in our hearts. You came to church this morning
and there'll be some of you today, has, as I conclude this, you're thinking of a person. You, you're thinking already of a neighbour or a workmate or a family member and something in your heart saying they're, they're half dead on the side of the road, they need help. You, you connected with an individual. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand because we're going to pray for them right now. Is that you? Right, just lift your hand, hold them up. Father, you see these hands. And with this hand, there is a face. A face and a name and a light you, uh, and a life. You know the tears on the pillow where they lay their head down at night. I pray today, give wisdom to my friends to know how to connect with the oil and the wine and the goodness of God and bring life out of death in Jesus' name. Put your hand down. You may have come to church today and you have never asked God to help you. It may be you that's lying half dead today on the side of the road and, and you know it. You know it. You know that you've made mistakes and maybe your life's a train wreck and yet somehow this morning you could believe that God's not angry at you. He's for you, not against you and you need help but you've never asked. You've never said, Jesus, would you please come into my life and lead me. If that's you today, you've come to church and you know your heart is soft and you want somehow the love of God to touch where you are. You've never asked, or maybe you did once and you've let it go so long, you need to start again. If that's you, lift your hand, I'm going to pray for you right where you sit. Right where you sit. If that you, is that you? Just have the courage. Just lift your hand and let me see you. And I'll pray for you right where you are. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Lord, bless this people today, I pray. Let the kingdom of heaven guide our behavior. Increase our capacity for you. And let the love of Jesus flow from this house. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to this weekly message audio podcast. If you'd like to listen to more messages and find out more information, check out our website at www.baysidechurch.com.au. Church has changed. Check it out.